0: Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church, Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Doing well this morning? Happy Palm Sunday, right? Yeah. Coming up on Easter around the corner. Well, I'm Heather. I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to welcome you, especially if you're new and you're joining us maybe for the first time or just recently. And those especially that are joining us online, we're really glad that you're with us this morning. We're nearing the end of our series, like Michael said, and we are uh, just ending near the end of the chapter here, of the last chapter of Revelation. And our series is entitled The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And last week, Andrew talked about the chapters 19 through 20, the return of Christ, and how Jesus defeated all evil and brought final justice. And this morning, we are looking at the resolution of that coming, the resolution in Revelation 21 through the beginning of chapter 22. We have a concluding vision of our future in Jesus. This is one of my fave chapters. This is a great one. Now, philosopher Dallas Willard, he says and claims that as humans, we think about the future as naturally as we breathe. Every human being is deeply concerned to know what the future holds, and the human mind must have some picture of the future. Is that true of you? Would you say that of yourself? Would you say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a future thinker? a future thing. And I would say, yeah, Dallas Willard's probably right. I mean, to some extent, how can we not be people that think about the future? But let me ask you this. Did you, are you the kind of person that thinks regularly about what life will be like when it's all over, when, when we die, when maybe Jesus returns, when the end comes, what that will be like? I know that that's, you know, really one of those enduring questions throughout time that really have concerned people, that people have thought a lot about, you know, what happens after we die, that question of what happens after we die, what happens to us, what happens to this earth, and for some of us, I I think some of us probably, if we're honest, we really haven't thought too much about it, or maybe we actively avoid it, because it just stirs up a lot of questions, and maybe some doubts, and fear, um, but the unknown can do that, for sure, I understand, but that hasn't stopped, you know, humanity at large from dreaming about and having ideas about what the afterlife will be like in in every culture. In every culture, people have a vivid idea of what they think the afterlife is going to be like. And perhaps the most popular view among us Christians is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you get to live with, with God forever in heaven when you die. And I mean, movies have told us this, right? They have they have shown us this idyllic place where there's lots of floating clouds and everyone's wearing white and, and maybe there's lots of singing and, and harp playing and it's you know, this like utopian existence uh, and, and maybe like one long worship service where you just say the same line over <laughs> and over again. Now, I love worship. I love worship. But to me, to sing the same songs over and over for the rest of eternity. It does not sound all that hopeful or exciting. (laughs) Now, I I don't want to burst your bubble here, but those are some fun pictures, but heaven really is just nothing like that, right? Heaven is nothing like that. And the way of thinking about the future like that, the future after we die and the future of this earth, that's really, really not accurate, is it? Well, it's true that when a Christian dies today, their soul is separated from their body, and their soul does go to be with God in heaven, but that is a temporary state. Theologians call that the intermediate state, because that is not our final state for us as Christians. We don't know exactly how that all happens, how that transition happens, but we do know, and we do have a picture, at least, of where it all ends up, where we end up. And let me take a minute to just redefine heaven as we see it in the Bible. In most of the references in the Bible, heaven isn't primarily a place that we go when we die. It is actually the fullness of God's presence. In almost all the instances of heaven in the Bible, it refers to being with Christ, with Christ. Heaven and earth aren't simply just separate living quarters. (laughs) You know, we're on earth right now, and then one day we, whoop, you know, we just, we go to this other place. Well, we are talking really about just two different domains, two different domains. They're representative of spaces, heaven being the one where God rules and where his presence fully dwells. And in heaven, that's where God's will is always done, always done. And the biblical authors They call this domain by different names in the Bible, including God's kingdom and paradise and eternal life and, of course, heaven. Now, earth is our domain, our domain, and on earth, humans have really chosen to be the ones that define evil and good for themselves. We define that for ourselves, and and that's what happened in the fall, right? Right. But biblical authors, they've given this this fallen earth, this broken world, a a name as well, and it's maybe the world or the present age or the age of sin and death. And in the beginning, the Bible it opens up with heaven and earth, heaven and earth's domain completely overlapping, overlapping. It was literally heaven on earth. It was truly paradise which is what I've named my daughter after. It was the Garden of Eden, right? It was the Garden of Eden. But quickly, we see there's this rift between these two domains because humans rebel. They rebel, and, and now they live in this place, this broken earth that's separate from God's domain. And really, Genesis 3 onward is this basic tension driving the story of the Bible is how God is going to rejoin heaven and earth first seen in Jesus, right? When, the, when he spoke and said, the kingdom is, has come. And then ultimately where the story ends, which is what we're looking at today, the vision, this promise of this divine space and human space being united once and again for all time. But what does it really matter, Heather? <laughs> I mean, that's really great if you're a theologian or you love to just study the Bible and learn new things. I mean, that's fun. But it, why does it really matter that we have a correct view of heaven? why does that even matter for us today? Well, you may not realize it, but your view few of the future, and how this story ends has huge implications for how you live and how you think and how you spend your time and how you spend your money and how you live as followers of Jesus today. It has huge implications. Dr. Howard Thurman, who was one of America's greatest theologians and authors and pastors in the middle of the 20th century, he gave a famous lecture at Harvard University about the meaning of African-American spirituals. You know, songs like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, you know, ones like that. He answered the objection that all those spirituals talked so much about heaven and thrones and crowns that people would wear when Jesus returned that it made people submissive and docile. That it was just pie in the sky when you die, by and by, right? But Thurman, he says, and he really objects to this, and he argued the contrary and said it was the belief in God's judgment, it was the faith that one day all wrongs would be made right and that people would be reunited with their loved ones and that they would be with Jesus forever that gave African Americans the capacity to endure through years of slavery and injustice. Rather than weaken slaves' self-respect or kill their passion for justice, Thurman said it was precisely that belief that this world wasn't all that there was and that our death wasn't The end, that, as he said, taught a people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as the raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that their environment, with all its cruelty, could not crush. See, what enabled African-Americans in our country to endure some of the most barbaric kind of cruelty and separation from their spouses and children and grinding poverty, what enabled people to endure was precisely that hope, precisely that belief in coming good based on the purpose and the promises and just the person of Jesus, what he did and what he was bringing See, the decisions that we make today are determined, and we might not think so, but it really is. They are determined by our sense of the future, of what's coming. So what is that future? What is that future? What does that look like? Well, before we dive into our passage today, before we look at what God showed John in Revelation, let's just pray and invite the Holy Spirit this morning. We do that, Lord. We we invite your presence with us. We say, come, Holy Spirit. We just admit our need for you, our desperation for you this morning. Would you come close to us? Would you speak to us? And we do, we just pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, this is, like I said, the last vision of John at the end of the end of Revelation. And remember, the question we need to be asking is, what does John see, right? That's the question we've been asking throughout the whole series, what does John see? And John did not write this book, as we remember, he didn't write this book as a secret code, you know, for us to decipher the timetable of Jesus's return or to find out exactly, exactly what happens after you die. It is a symbolic vision that brought hope and challenged the seven first century churches in that day and really every generation of Christians since. It reveals history's pattern and God's promise that one day Jesus will return to remove all evil from his world and make all things new, including his people. And that is a promise that definitely stirs up hope in all generations. So let's read beginning in chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. First, I want to make just some observations about this opening scene, this opening scene. It gives us comp- really some context for the rest of what we're going to look at, what John sees. And first, the first thing I want to point out is just in verse one, he said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. What does this remind you of? What what does this remind you? This is beautiful, this is beautiful. See, the Bible, it starts with what? Creation, right? And as we see here, it ends with new creation. So it's bookended. The whole Bible is bookended with creation. Look at the similarity between Genesis 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created what? Then the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, the biblical story began quite logically with the beginning. Now it draws to an end. Not quite so logically, also with a beginning. The sin-ruined creation of Genesis is restored in the sacrifice-renewed creation of Revelation. The product of these beginnings and endings acts of creation are the same, the heaven and the earth in Genesis, and the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation. The story that has creation for its first word has creation for its last word, Mm. So here we witness Scott, John's symbolic vision of this great rebirth, this great rebirth, eh, that new heaven and new earth. It's just, again, this clear refer- reference to the very beginning of the biblical narrative. But we also see in verse 1 that it says there'll no longer be any sea, any fishermen in here that are like, yeah, that's not okay with me. Heaven? better have some water. Yeah? <laughs> Anybody? Uh, is John saying really that there's not going to be any body of water in heaven or in new creation? No. It's, actually, if you read throughout the Old Testament and you just tally up all the times the ocean or the sea is talked about, it's almost never done in a positive way. Even in Genesis 1-2, notice the word for waters there. Similar picture for the sea. For them, the sea represented chaos chaos and instability it was perceived as dangerous and impossible to rule the sea represented the powers at work in the universe that threatened to undo us but in the new heaven and earth the forces of chaos the sea is gone is gone so no more typhoons Flying through the Philippines, no more tornadoes destroying homes in Mississippi, no more earthquakes destroying buildings in Turkey, no more school shootings, no more world wars, no more nuclear bombs. In the new heaven and the new earth, there are no longer any ultimate threats. No more. All done. The chaos and the instability of creation has ceased. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Now, second, John sees. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You can only get away with this kind of stuff in apocalyptic literature, which of course we know contrasts and juxtaposes metaphors from the Old Testament. I mean, this is how you can have in verse two, a city literally wearing a dress. I mean, it's not literally, but you you have, it's cities wearing a dress right here in verse two. The city is coming with Jesus, and this is of God's doing. It's coming, note the words, come down, out of heaven. This means that this is God's work, not our work. We didn't make this city, God did. And he's bringing it down from heaven. And again, this confronts our idea that we go to heaven when we die, which is a statement never found in the Bible, not even once, Actually, what you see here is the movement precisely in the opposite direction, right? The opposite direction. It's all about heaven coming here. Heaven coming here. It doesn't involve people going away. It involves God's presence coming here in a transformative and healing and restorative way. And that's, that's just beautiful. Now, in verse 3, again, I want to just call out one more thing before we really walk through this chapter— it says, He who is seated on the throne said, I am making, I am making everything new. I'm making everything new. And there are really just two words that are used for new in the New Testament. And the first one is neos, and it's the newness of time, young. You know, it means like a young person or recent in existence. And then there's kinos, which is new in quality, new in nature, a freshness strength, and wholeness. The new heavens and the new earth will not be a replacement heaven and a replacement earth as if God is going to scrap the original creation and start over from nothing. Rather, you have the word kainos. Kainos, the new heavens and the new earth will be renewed, regenerated, restored with a new quality of existence, a new quality of existence. Now, I know that this chapter is quite a lengthy passage. We're looking at chapter 21 all the way through chapter 22, verse 5. But Darrell Johnson, again, he does such a wonderful job at really kind of organizing these complex metaphors and symbols into two lists in his commentary, Discipleship on the Edge, which we've used a lot in this series. And he organizes them into two simple lists, seven things that are not in new creation and seven things that are in new creation— And of course, we don't have time to go through all 14. So I'm just going to choose a couple of those uh, this morning. But I highly encourage you to check it out if you're curious to learn a little bit more about this chapter, to study it a little more. I think it really helps us to define a little bit of what that new future hope looks like. So I wanna just touch on a couple this morning. The first one is God is there. God is with us. And we just read this in verse three, but I wanna read again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's beautiful. God says he'll dwell among them. I mean, this is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises reiterated for centuries. I will make my home among them. But see here, it doesn't say again that we will go to be with God. Rather, we read God himself will be with them and be their God. Our ultimate destination, our future hope is not to be where God is, but again, the ultimate destination is God with us, where we are on this renewed planet earth. And this is further emphasized when we read in verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city. Now this was unthinkable as a Jew. This would have really worried John, which is why we see him going street after street looking for the temple. (laughs) He's he's gotta be here somewhere. Uh, But there's simply no way a, a lifelong Jew would have ever talked about God without also talking about the temple because the temple was so important. That's where where people encountered God. That's where God chose to dwell. And as he looks street after street, he sees no temple. Why? Because the entire city is the temple. What John sees is that God's dwelling place is no longer confined to a separate space within the city, but that it's all temple. It's just all temple. And we actually read a little bit more about this in verses 16 through 17. This is emphasized where God, God gives John these, these interesting measurements of the city itself. And people have loved to try to figure this one out. I have looked at all the drawings that people thought, you know, this new city, it's very interesting <laughs> what people have tried to figure out the measurements of this. And it says, the city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. And he measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement. It was 144 cubits thick. And here again, the temptation, right? The temptation is to treat the numbers as statistics rather than, what do we know? Rather than symbols, right? Symbols. But as we've seen, all the numbers in Revelation have been more symbolic in meaning. See, John wasn't trying to just document a blueprint for us. See, I know that most English translations, probably yours included, in the interest of using modern units of measurement, they render John's numbers in a way that actually really just obscures his point here. He says that the length and width and height of the cubicity is 12,000 stadia. John says 12,000, which really means, really means clearly that it's symbolic 12,000 is the number for completeness and fulfillment. He may, he's making the point that God's city perfectly fulfills all the promises of God, perfectly fulfills. It's totally complete. It's beyond measurement, and it is big enough for all the people of God. But it also points to something else really profound. If you know the scriptures, especially Old Testament, uh, what do you know about the temple itself? what else is a cube in the temple? Do you know what the, the cube represents in the temple? It was the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was exactly a cube. And everyone in John's day would have heard this when they, when they heard these measurements. They would have been like, wait a minute, are you talking about like, we're going to be living in the Holy of Holies? Not just the temple, but the Holy of Holies? This is, this is radical, this is radical. See, we will finally live in God's splendor, in his majesty, in his power, in his holiness, in his glory, healing, and love. In this city, we do, in every sense of the word, live and move and have our being in God. I this is the ultimate picture of what we are one day going to have. Now, second, John describes this, what Daryl Johnson calls creatureliness, Never heard that word before, but I'll go with it. Creatureliness, more of like a materiality or a tangibleness, like a tangible stuff is in this new world. And there are, I mean, we see this. We see this in a couple of verses. There's stones and gems and walls and gates and fruits and rivers. And we read it in verses 13. There were three gates on the east and three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall was made of jasper, the city was made of pure gold in verse 18 and 19. Foundations of the city were decorated with every kind of precious stone. And then in chapter 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Mm. Someone has said that the Christian faith is the most materialistic of all the faiths, meaning that it's the most earthy. This vision of the future is very tangible. We're not talking about floating in the clouds here. This is very tangible. George Eldon Ladd, he actually puts it best when he wrote, the Bible always places men and women on a redeemed earth, not in a heavenly realm removed from earthly existence. Is this not one of the implications of what we talk about at Christmas? Christmas. God becoming human, the Word becoming flesh. God took up our humanity and became what we are, flesh and blood and tangible stuff. And again, this is, this is also the implication of next weekend, right? The implications of Easter. Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, rose from the grave bodily. Bodily. Yes, his Easter body was different than his Good Friday body, but he was a body, the prototype and the guarantee for us of this new creation. We know this because after Jesus was resurrected, he came back in his new body to, what? to, to walk around to be with his disciples. And, and though for a short time, he wasn't this disembodied spirit, was he? He even says, guys, I'm not a ghost. <laughs> Thomas is like, whoa. <laughs> and he's like, I'm not a ghost. Come, come touch my hands. Come feel the scars in my hands. He was body, he was flesh and bone, and yet he had new capabilities, didn't he? (laughs) Yeah, he ate and drank, but he also could walk through walls (laughs) and he could disappear and appear just like that. We will have similar bodies. It is a foreshadowing of what we will have. This is a new mode of human existence. It's a bit of a mystery, but it's also a bit of an excitement. Our hope is not to be freed of our creatureliness, but to be freed of the sin that causes creation and our bodies to decay. God's, God's saying here, John's heaven is not this world defying nirvana. It's not that. It's, he is building this new city, this earth creation that was truly, it's brought into completion, brought into completion. He reconciles and redeems all of creation. The earth is still going to be here, but it's all the good things that we love about it that are going to be exponentially improved to the degree that our imaginations probably can't even comprehend. A new dimension. It's going to be amazing. And then in the verse, um, verse three, we read that John describes peoples. And it's actually plural here. Now, in your translations, it's going to say the word people, but in the Greek literal translation of this word, it's peoples. And I'll I'll read it. And it says in verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the peoples. That's literally the peoples and he will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and be their God. See, what he's saying here is all of God's peoples. It's like the plural of the plural word people. It's the plural of that. So it's all the peoples, all God's chosen peoples. God gathers up the full range of the world's ethnic diversity. God's glory does not just, it does not obliterate stuff, tangible stuff, and it does not obliterate peoples. No one ethnic grouping can bear or manifest the full image of God. It takes all of us. And in this new city, we are all there as God's multi ethnic race. We are finally, finally reconciled with each other. Amen? Finally. And this is also emphasized in verse 25 because it says there will be no closed gates. This city is not a jail to keep people in, and it is not an exclusive resort to keep people out. There are no closed gates, there are no closed borders. There are no need, there's no need for protection from the outside world. There's no longer a a fear or a frightenedness of what's outside or the foreigners outside. What has happened here is that Israel or this new Jerusalem has finally fulfilled its reason for being, which intentionally in the beginning was to be a blessing to all the nations, a blessing for all the ethnic groupings in the world, All are welcome to come and go. And then we see John speaks of the kings of the earth in verse 24. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Again, this emphasizes this idea. Ancient kings served as the primary authorities over the broader patterns of their cultural lives of their specific nations. And they stood over and against other nations. They were the bearers, the representatives of their respective cultures, to assemble the kings together was an important sense in an important sense to assemble their national cultures together the presence of kings signals the presence of cultures civilizations and all the creativity that they express all the creativity they express i love this quote from the theologian anthony Hokema. he says there will we he asked the question will there be better beethovens on the new earth Shall we then see better Rembrandts, better Raphaels? Shall we read better poetry, better drama, and better prose? Will scientists continue to advance in technological advancements? Will geologists continue to dig out the treasures of the earth? And will architects continue to build imposing attractive sculptures, or structures? (laughs) Structures. I mean, this is our role from the beginning to the end. Many creators, right? the richest of all the peoples and all the cultures that they express will only continue to increase into our future. How exciting is that? Mm. Now lastly, there is one more reality of the new city that I wanna touch on, and it is probably one of my faves, and it is that the face of God is there. The face of God is there. In verse four, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. I mean, this is really where we see faith. Faith becomes sight. Faith becomes sight. I mean, who here has just longed and ached to one day see and just be embraced by God? I mean, fully and tangibly. I mean, I'm looking forward to that. But what we know is that the face expresses who a person is. To see God's face will be to know God in his personal being, to fully know God. And then it says, his name will be on our foreheads. Name stands for character and it signifies authority. His character will then now forevermore be on our foreheads for we will finally be all that we were created to be. We will be reconciled with our true, true selves and we shall finally be in the image and the likeness of God completely. In seeing God and embracing God, we will know God and we will be fully known by God in a way that the deepest desires and the aches and the longings and the hungers in our hearts will be filled as we see him as he truly is. And in seeing in his eyes the truest, purest, deepest love for us, that our hearts have ever known, our hearts can even imagine. I mean, just think of like the best relationship you've ever had, or the best marriage, or the best moment with your friends, or the best sunset you've ever seen, the best moment in, in, your, in your life. I mean, these are just tiny tastes of what heaven is going to be like, what, what it'll be like to finally see the face of God. But that is not all, is it? That's not all. When, when we see his face and he sees our face, what will he do? What will he do? In uh, verse four of chapter 21, he says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or no mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Boy, no matter how far we advance as people, our lives are still marked by these things, aren't they? by tears and death and mourning and crying and pain. We have all been touched by them. And in this new city, they're not gonna be there anymore. All of those life robbers, as Darrell Johnson calls it, are gone, they're gone. But they're also not just whisked away magically, just erasing all the wrong and the hurt and the injustice in the world and in our lives. It says he, as in God, will wipe away every tear from our eyes. What a personal, sacred, weighty response to the effects of pain and injustice in our lives and all the horror of human history. Wow, this is beautiful. This, This new earth and new heaven, it doesn't ignore all that came before, all the pain that you've experienced in your life. It is saying somehow the creator God's love for you is so great that it will all be accounted for and paid for and that he himself will also walk with us into the aftermath of the hurt and he will heal it once and for all. He will heal it once and for all. We will be whole and complete, not lacking anything. Mm. Amen. Well, I wanna end with this. I wanna end with this. C.S. Lewis says... This is great, this is a great quote. Christians who did most for the present world were those who saw most of the next. And the reason we are so ineffective in this world is that we have ceased thinking about the next world. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Mm. What a person hopes for in the future shapes what they live for here and now. Shapes what they live for here and now. Now, I I know the reality as we read this chapter, John's last vision might leave us with a lot of unanswered questions, but I think that's not a bad thing. See, John's goal wasn't to satisfy our curiosities, but to instill confidence, instill confidence and hope that our relationship with God, all creation, All peoples, all relationships, even our true self will one day be reconciled, redeemed, and restored. That's his goal here. This is the hope of the story of the whole Bible is that God's domain and our domain will one day completely unite again and all things will be made new and death will be replaced with life and every nation will be blessed through the power of the resurrection of Jesus. And God's own personal presence will permeate every square inch of new creation. This is the kind of hope, this is the kind of hope that can make all the difference in our life now and the one to come. Yeah. Amen. Well, as the worship team comes back up, I want to extend an invitation to anyone here who has never encountered God before if you've never encountered God before, I just wanna extend an invitation to start a real relationship with Him today. And, and again, not just so that you can go to heaven when you die, You know, it's not just so you can get a ticket to heaven. Because what did we learn today, right? We learned that heaven is the fullness of God's presence. And that's not just for some day, is it, right? That's not just for someday. that's for today. That you can experience today you can know Jesus and experience his presence today. All you need to do is cry out to him this morning. All you need to do is say yes to him, that you wanna follow him and give your life to him. Would you do that today? If you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, not only would you, would you just take a moment to, to pray and ask God to come in to your life and, and run your life from here on out. But would you also just tell someone, would you either come forward, maybe after we worship and minister time, have somebody pray for you, or maybe just nudge the person next to you and say, hey, I think I have just invited the Lord to be in my life. And could you pray for me? We wanna bless that, we wanna bless that. So we're gonna go, we're gonna go ahead and stand right now and, and go back into a time of worship. Well-